As the Continental Congress met in the Pennsylvania State House, the brick building we now know as Independence Hall, there was acrimony. As the forces for independence argued with those who wanted reconciliation with Britain still, the votes were there for independence. These representatives, even the moderate ones, were sent there to protest Britain. If they were truly loyalists or Tories, they wouldn't be there in that hall at all. So Franklin was trolling for votes. Could he get some delegations to switch, get a few more states to make it unanimous for independence? Rutledge and Middleton, he asked, can you get the South Carolinians to vote for independence? They said they'd work on them. His own colleague, Jane Wilson from Pennsylvania, can you side with us for independence? Then he grabs Thomas McKean, delegate from Delaware. McKean, can you get your delegation to vote for independence? Well, that might be challenging, Dr. Franklin, he might have said. There was no problem for he himself. McKean came from an Ulster Scott family. You might call them Scots-Irish. Settlers who came from Northern Ireland who were of Scottish heritage and then settled in America. In the Revolution, this very populous immigrant group tended to be supporters of throwing off the yoke of the British king. McKean's father was a tavern keeper in Chester County, Pennsylvania. McKean had studied law on his own and at age 20 became a lawyer in the colony next door. He made Delaware Bar and he put 20 years into law and politics in Delaware. He had several jobs there. He was a member of the legislature, county clerk, a sheriff, and a key opponent of the Stamp Act in Delaware as a member of the Stamp Act Congress in New York. He was rabid for independence. And as a local militia captain, he knew exactly what he was getting into, about to start a fight with a powerful army. But he knew that he too had a well-trained, well-regulated, well-armed Delaware militia, staffed principally with soldiers from the New Castle County country, Many Scots-Irish, but others as well. So his own vote was no problem, but the trouble he explained to Franklin was George Reed. Reed probably reflected the will of the colony of Delaware, probably closer than McKean did. Formed in 1682, when the Dutch farmers living in these three Delaware counties, Newcastle, Kent, Sussex, didn't want to be part of Lord Baltimore's Maryland, nor William Penn's Pennsylvania, Delaware was a small colony and divided. The Dutch, many of whom have been under British rule for generations now, were not as excited about rebellion as the others. Those on the coast who had trade with the British ships were not as interested. Yet there were many patriots as well in Delaware, particularly the Scots-Irish, but men and women in the colony were of divided minds. This is an important point as we discuss George Reed and the others who were more moderate at this time, the John Dickinsons, the Ned Rutledges. It was a lot easier in Massachusetts or Virginia to be a rebel, to be a patriot, when all your neighbors probably were. In the middle states, you did so with opposition. Neighbors and friends would be Tories among you. Reed represented that sentiment. He had been Crown Attorney General for Delaware counties and served in the Delaware Assembly. To him, McKean was a radical and independence was a crazy concept, taking on the world's largest army and navy. He was for dignified protests, boycotts, appeals to Parliament, appeals to the King, on July 1st, it was clear George Reed would vote against independence. One thing to keep in mind, though, nobody really voted for or against independence. Though these men signed the document, the Declaration of Independence, and Reed, though he'd vote against independence, would end up signing the document with the others. When it came for the vote for independence that would be held on July 2nd, they voted as states. So, one-on-one, -on -one, McKean would vote yes, Reed would vote no, the state would deadlock and not vote. Franklin asked McKean, can you get the third delegate here? Can you get Caesar Rodney? Why, Dr. Franklin, McKean said, it's 80 miles. 
Well, Franklin said, a post rider, maybe. A post rider was, in 1776, the way you would get a fast message to someone. Here's how it worked. You'd go to the messenger, give them the letter. They would jump on a horse, go as fast as they can, wearing out the horse, and maybe 15 miles, they would get fresh horse. Wear that horse out, go another 15 miles, and get another fresh horse. Yes, it was tough on the rider, but really the work was being done by the horse, and you were constantly changing. It was an expensive process, and it was only for the most urgent messages, of which this would be one. They had just tabled a motion for independence, to allow for cooler heads, thought, reflection. But maybe, Franklin thought, he could get a few more states, make it unanimous. Well, McKean said, Caesar Rodney was sick when I last saw him. Well, Franklin said, maybe he's better now. You must try. Well, did all this happen this way? Did Franklin really play the role? We're not sure. All the accounts differ. We do know this. It appears a postwriter was summoned for Caesar Rodney, the third delegate. Perhaps this postwriter was a sympathizer and made it extra fast. It's not known really when the postwriter was ordered. Perhaps McKean did this well ahead of the vote for independence. And perhaps McKean, without Dr. Franklin's intervention at all, sent this messenger down. What we do know is that Caesar Rodney, officer of the Delaware militia, fighter in the French and Indian War, son of a politically involved and wealthy family, owner of an 800-acre farm, began a legendary journey. Most of his county, Kent, in the middle of the state of Delaware, was loyalist. His farm was right in the middle, and he was a patriot who supported independence. This put him in a unique position, and it was kind of the bastion of patriot sentiment in his county. He was a member of the Delaware Assembly, and in June, he sat as speaker of that body, as, in effect, president of Delaware, as the assembly debated to separate from the king, which they decided to do on June 15th before the Declaration of Independence was approved. Well, that worked in populous Newcastle County, where the Scots-Irish controlled the county and, and other patriots were active in the city of Wilmington. But in Kent and Sussex counties, a rebellion within the rebellion occurred. The loyalists there rose up against the assembly. Caesar Rodney, as a captain of the militia, had to put this revolt down. And he was doing just that with the Delaware militia when the post rider came. He was not feeling well, but he was not greatly ill. And he embarked. And so, on a great white horse, he went down on the king's high road from the city of Dover, or perhaps from the city of Luz, changing horses several times or keeping the same horse we don't know, traveling through the moonlit countryside, in the heat, in the thundering rain. This gallant, if odd-looking man, some say his head looked like an apple, made his ride, preserved in the coinage of Delaware today, and preserved in many statues in the state. By that morning, he appeared in boots and spurs to meet McKean, rise up and say, I vote for independence. And thus, Delaware joined the rest of the colonies, now states. As the poem goes, Ho, settle back, I've but half a day, and the Congress sits 80 miles away, but I'll be in time if God grants us grace to shake my fist in King George's face. We don't know if Caesar Rodney really said it. Counts differ. He could have rode his horse. He could have rode the post rider's horse. He could have ridden a carriage. He probably took several ferries along the way. And he might have started from a bit farther away or closer. Accounts differ on these things. We do know he made a ride and arrived just in time to vote. The account, of course, is from Thomas Rodney. And, well, your brother is bound to give you a good story. Be proud of you, right? But in a sense, it doesn't matter whether some of these accounts have been exaggerated, perhaps. 
We know he made a great ride, but Caesar Rodney also made a contribution in the fight for independence. The Battle of Long Island, at Brandywine, at Camden, where the Delaware militia was nearly destroyed. Sadly, due to a bout of cancer, perhaps. He lived but a few years, but he did get to see the new nation born. Caesar Rodney, Thomas McKean, fought with muskets and gunpowder, cannonball and bayonet against King George to create the largest and most powerful democracy. But it was a group of people who picked up swords, shields, battle axes, and Swiss volges in ruthless hand-to-hand combat, melee, who may have set the precedent for everything that they did. Hundreds of years before Rodney's, Reed's, McKean's, Jefferson's, or Adams were living on the American continent at all, a great fight for freedom occurred of a different sort. When people think about the freedom that Americans cherish, we may possibly think of the Bill of Rights, certainly of the Declaration, but oddly we may owe much more to a critical event that occurred across the ocean from America 500 years before. The sacking of London by the combined armies of a group of barons who had had enough with one of the worst occupants of the English throne, King John. Though King John could also be called King John Lachlan or King Johann of French heritage, and more attached to that heritage than to England where his throne was. John was seen as a political schemer of the worst kind, and what he wanted most, as the English king, was to get off the island and reconquer his family's home of Normandy in northern France. In the process of doing so, he got into a scuffle with the Pope. When he lost that humiliating political and military standoff, he had to get out of it with a tribute. That cost, and King Johann taxed the barons heavily to pay for his conquest to finance it. This was harsh for the nobles of the country, the barons, but of course for the many people that toiled under them as well. The villain king he was, the legend of Robin Hood's villain, was based on him, King John, King Johan. The barons came to realize it was they that had the resources, the army, and the money, not the king. And this had to stop. They had to assert their own power. When the king visited his castle in the north of England once, the barons formed an army of their own and with help from city dwellers who had no love for the king, occupied the capital city and commercial city of England, London. King John had no choice. He was forced to meet with baron leaders on the island of Runnymede near London and on the 15th of June, 1215, signed what was called the Great Charter. But because it was in Latin, we know it as the Magna Carta. The document created various rights, but most importantly, it set the law, the law of God in this case, above the king, demanded that the king administer the country free of patronage. There were clauses banning the common practices of the King John's legal government, which amounted to the bribes for any kind of legal service. And an important clause, Clause 61, that essentially said John was king in name only, and that a group of barons would watch over him. Most importantly, if King John violated Clause 61, or the Magna Carta, the barons could use force. This is 1215 AD, and a group of people, of course, far from the common citizens that took up many a musket in 1776, but still a group of non-royals, were putting limits on kingly power in the English-speaking world. It was a radical document, too radical perhaps, and as soon as John had left the island of Runnymede, he was intent on defying it. Now that he had patched things up with the Pope, Innocent III, He got his new ally in Rome to annul what he called a shameful and demeaning agreement forced upon him by violence and fear. 
and the king would then start a war with the revolting barons to determine the future of whether that document would be enforced or not. Fortunately for human events, King John died on October 18, 1216 during this struggle. This is where the most important events would occur. Having anyone else on the throne but the hated John seemed more palatable to the barons. And so, when his nine-year-old son took over, many of the barons supported the new monarch. Of course, some didn't. So in order to get the other barons to agree, those supporting the new king, his regents, issued the Magna Carta, now in the name of King Henry. But when he turned 18 in 1225, Henry III reaffirmed the Magna Carta, precedent set. As he got into his 20s, the youngster became a man-king, and his actions didn't seem to follow that document anymore. Then the king and the barons got uppity. Here's where an odd player comes into play, a person who, though he would never have heard of any place called America, or think that anyone could sail there in his day, made an innovation that would directly contribute to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. His name was Simon de Montfort. He was not an Englishman at all. He was brought to England, ironically, by King Henry III. He was his friend, brought to be one of the king's loyal barons. He was brought to court and given the earldom of Leicester. But then he and a few other barons, despite having been brought in by Henry, had their disputes with him. They demanded more say in running the kingdom. Oh, and de Montfort engaged in an offense against the king. He married the king's sister without his permission. It came to war, and quickly, Simon de Montfort proved to be an able general and a charismatic fellow who converted barons and commoners alike to the rebel cause. De Montfort and his forces had captured most of southeastern England by 1263, and at the Battle of Lewes in 1264, Henry was defeated and taken prisoner by de Montfort's army. Here's where the innovations come. King Henry was being reduced now to a figurehead, and de Montfort was running the country effectively. But he decided that his government would be stronger if he diluted the power and empowered the little guys. So he broadened representation to include each county of England in the decisions of the kingdom and many important towns, that is to say groups beyond the nobility. Yes, barons, of course, but more than that, the key leaders, small politicians, burghers and knights in the towns and counties, successful artisans, commoners, they weren't peasants, to be sure. They were significant people in these communities, but it was still a broad representation. While Henry and his son, Prince Edward, remained under house arrest during this time, effectively Simon de Montfort was making all the decisions in his name. The short period that followed was the closest England would come to complete abolition of the monarchy until the English Civil War, and many of the barons who had initially supported de Montfort began to suspect that he was going a little too far with his reforming zeal and maybe giving too many jobs and patronage to his own sons. They began fighting amongst themselves. De Montfort's sphere of influence rapidly began to deteriorate, and he lost one of his key baron allies, Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester upset about not getting enough royal favors and tiring of his excommunication by the Pope for his rebellion. So he deserted to the side of the king, and with Gloucester's assistance, Prince Edward, King Henry's son, escaped. In a reward, Gloucester was soon reinstated to the church. Running out of allies, de Montfort then teamed up with the Welsh. Now in rebellion, the Welsh agreed to help in return for full recognition of the Prince of Wales' title and the promise that he could keep all military gains. Whatever benefits the alliance might have brought Monkford, the great concessions cost him popularity at home. 
Meanwhile, Prince Edward was out now, and he laid siege to the town of Gloucester. Simon de Montfort, leading his army, tried to unite with the army of his son, also called Simon, and engage with the royal army. But the younger Simon moved too slow, and the prince cut Simon de Montfort off, and he managed to trap Simon de Montfort in a loop of the Avon River, blocking off the only bridge and forcing Montfort to fight without his son's reinforcements. Just north of the town of Evesham, Edward set up his forces on the left, Gloucester commanding on the right. Eight in the morning, the battle begins. The king's forces had the numbers. The royal forces were 10,000, where the baronial armies were just 5,000. What do you do when you've got numbers like that? You've got to do something surprising and decisive. And so Simon de Montfort did. He concentrated his forces right into the smack center of the army, hoping to drive a wedge through the line between Gloucester and Prince Edward. You do that, and well, now you've got flanks you can turn on, you can envelope. The enemy's full force can't be used, and so your numbers, small as they might be, don't matter, because most of your opponent's forces are trapped in a pile of their own soldiers. It's a great plan, and at first, it started to work. But then, the flanks of the army, Edward and Gloucester, then closed in on Simon de Montfort and enveloped his army. The battle rapidly turned into a massacre. Simon de Montfort was captured and killed. The new parliament that would develop under the royal authority in the same year said that all those who had taken part in the rebellion were disinherited of their titles and their property. This is not so good for human rights, right? We were just starting to think we like this Frenchman, Simon de Montfort, a lot. And now he's dead. And with him, the hopes of a nation, right? He showed us a great example by rebelling against a king and allowing common folk into the government. Well, his defeat was not so bad for the precedent of liberty exactly because for Prince Edward to complete his defeat of de Montfort, he had to do something after he was released from capture to win over more barons. He had to pledge his support for the Magna Carta. And for this, he got that important baronial support in crushing de Montfort and reconfirmed the Magna Carta. The precedent of the great letter just kept growing and growing. During the reign of Edward III, six measures were passed that between 1331 and 1369, known as the Six Statutes. They started to clarify certain parts of these charters. No man henceforth shall be attached by any accusation or forejudged of life or limb, nor his lands, tenements, goods, or chattel seized into the king's hands, unless it be by law of the land. Sounds a little familiar, right? Henceforth, none shall be taken by petition or suggestion made to our lord the king or to his council, unless it be by indictment or presentment of good and lawful people of the same neighborhood where such deeds be done. We call that a jury, right? And that no man can be put to answer without presentment before justices or matter of record or by due process and writ original, according to the old law of the land. In our Bill of Rights goes back to the 1300s. Try as they might, English kings could never quite be the autocrats that they wanted once that first Magna Carta was signed by King Johann. Magna Carta would have a history of being reconfirmed maybe 32 or 45 times by different kings. It's by no means a perfect constitutional document. It really was a peace treaty signed under duress. And indeed, it gives rights only to people who did no manual labor. It still establishes powerful concepts like habeas corpus, and most importantly of all, it puts the English king under a set of laws. The Magna Carta was not a declaration of independence. It continued the chain of royal command, though in weakened form. In no way did Simon de Montfort or any baron create a country. Yet this event, 500 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, 
would have an important influence on the English mind, which means American mind too. It created precedents along with the English Civil War and the triumph of William and Mary and other events that live on today. The American colonists would be thinking of those precedents. Indeed, probably the latter one. You could draw a direct line from the Bill of Rights of William and Mary, the requirement of Parliament for William to take the throne about a hundred years before the Declaration, before the first of three King Georgia would be on the throne, had clauses such as this. The agreement of Parliament is necessary for implementation of new taxes. Freedom to petition the monarch without fear of retribution. No royal interference in the freedom of the people to have arms. No royal interference in the election of members of Parliament. The freedom of speech and debates or proceeding in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. No excessive bail or cruel and unusual punishments may be imposed, all in the Bill of Rights of William and Mary. The Magna Carta did not prevent the overthrow of a king, but the document did allow for force to assert the baronial right against a king. In creating Parliament, de Montfort added the idea that it's not just baronial influence, the idea of townspeople, burghers, local politicos, and the wealthy barons as stakeholders in the country. The rights would be asserted by Englishmen, would show up in other kingly battles, and were rights understood by the men who signed the Declaration of Independence as their British-American rights. Even the idea that they used force, though radical, was not without precedent. This trip to England, I hope, was fun, but not a diversion at all. These important English precedents set the stage for a group of men on the American continent to feel completely normal in exercising their rights and signing what they did. Men like Caesar Rodney and Thomas McKean, as they rode out to face the British, were doing so in the defense of a new nation, but also in the defense of rights they knew and had precedents for. That a king is ruler supreme, but subject to ultimate laws. None of this history should belittle the leap that these signers made, however. We should keep in mind that unlike any of these barren rebels or breakaways that we talked about in England, the signers not only asserted their rights, they declared sovereignty over the land they owned from the king and took responsibility for the government of a new nation. I want to thank you for listening. If you like this uh, podcast, please go on iTunes and just indicate uh, that you like it in the comments there. Appreciate that. I also do a podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's on iTunes. It's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I talk about current politics in the context of history. It's a lot different from the podcast I'm doing here, but you might like it. I want to thank you for listening.